Well, hello, welcome to this podcast from the Royal College of Anaesthetists. It's entitled What We Can Learn from COVID-19. Uh, my name is Will Herrick Griffiths. I'm Vice President of the Royal College of Anaesthetists and Professor of Practice of Anaesthesia at Imperial College London. Uh, I'm delighted to be joined by two guests today, uh, Dawn Chamberlain, Director for Clinical Improvement and Beneficial Changes Network Lead at NHS England and Improvement, and I'm also joined by Kian Wade, the National Medical Director's Clinical Fellow at both the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges and NHS England Improvement. Welcome to you both. Thank you very much indeed for joining us today. Now, we're going to talk again about COVID-19. It seems that most podcasts at the moment inevitably are about COVID-19. And we're going to use as a lever to our discussions a report published recently back in June 2021 by the Royal College of Anaesthetists that examines 10 lessons that we think that the UK healthcare system can learn from the pandemic. Now, these, these lessons are inevitably spoken about from the angle of anaesthesia and critical care medicine. And although I'm not trying to persuade my guests today to agree that these are the absolute key lessons, uh, I'm hoping to use them as a pivot point for discussion. So, Kian, we're going to come to you first. Uh, I hope I've introduced you correctly. Uh, if I haven't, please correct me. And what I'd like to know is what have you been up to for the last 18 months or so and what things have been occupying your interest and occupying your time? Well, thanks very much. And thanks very much for having me on the podcast. Um, so I started the pandemic, I suppose, as uh, you know, a, a frontline junior doctor working in, in a busy emergency department, which was, um, you know, obviously a fairly difficult but exciting in many ways time. I then came to the end of that, that placement in the summer and started in this um, role as a National Medical Director Clinical Fellow, um, both at the Academy and NHS England Improvement. And since then, I've really been working on a variety of different projects um, that, that span across areas that are relevant to, to the ongoing response to the pandemic and, and other areas of, as well. Um, particularly interesting in regards to the pandemic, uh, I think, is, is really working with the Academy to um, presents the sort of unified front of the profession in um, advocating for certain policies uh, that we've that we've undertaken over the course of the pandemic, um, working to gather um, consensus from across the medical profession and really ensure that um, we have been at the forefront and at the heart of, of um, influencing the response. Um, I've also done quite a lot of work around health inequalities, which obviously has been starkly highlighted, um, sadly, by the pandemic, and particularly looking at what the healthcare system could do in the space of health inequalities at the point that an individual becomes a patient who is interacting with the healthcare system. And I think as we recover and emerge from the pandemic, I think um, that's going to be a, a significant focus for us all in the profession. So it's been, a, it's been an exciting and a very interesting time um, and challenging in many ways. Um, but has been, you know, a hugely, hugely beneficial to me at the sort of early stages of my career, both in clinical medicine and also in, in clinical leadership. Kian, thanks very much indeed. Dawn, we come to you next. I suspect you've been quite busy these last 18 months as, as well. Can you just describe exactly what your role is at NHS EI and how this role may have been changing this last year and a half or so? Yes, absolutely. And thanks for the invite to join you today. Um, so in response to 
the first wave of COVID uh, back in April uh, last year, the National Incident Response Board asked if the improvement directorate that I work in could reach out and start to harvest some of the learning um, that um, we could see a huge amount of change going on as people were responding at pace, uh, both within the hospital, but also in terms of across sectors um, outside the hospital to try and keep patients away from the hospital door, um, collaboration, innovation, and of course the digital um, transformation that was all happening at pace. And so I was asked to lead on that piece of work. We established the Beneficial Changes Network and it's grown from there into um, a network that reaches out across hundreds of organisations. And we have over a thousand members and really harvesting the learning. Um, over 3,600 submissions of change were sent in from the front line. Uh, and we've done a huge amount of work to distill that through good evaluation and thematic analysis to really then understand the high impact changes that have been positive um, in amongst all of the challenges. Uh, so yes, uh, that's been a new area of work um, in addition to the sort of other clinical improvement programmes such as Right Care and others that, that I'm involved with. Dawn, that's a, a really great uh, intro for me to pick one of the 10 lessons learnt in the document published by the Royal College of Anaesthetists, and that's dropping down, in fact, to number 10. I'm not saying it's the 10th priority, but there is huge potential for digital innovation. That's something you mentioned just there. Now, I, like everybody else in the world, have spent more time than ever I would have wished to sitting in front of a computer, as I am now, teaming and Zooming and WhatsApping and FaceTiming. Digital innovation goes beyond that. Is, is what we are talking about just here getting our learning, get our interactions through the internet, or is there more to digital in innovation that you would like to see developing? So I think there's um, two aspects that stand out. Of course, the first, which is enabling virtual uh, multi multidisciplinary teams. It's enabling uh, consultation across sectors around particular cohorts of patients. Um, it's enabling integrated single points of access, reducing waiting times and clarifying the right care at the right time. Those things are, are enabled through the sort of thing we're doing today, through teams and other forms of um, interoperability. But Beyond that, we've, of course, got all sorts of other uh, digital aspirations. Um, there's a lot of remote monitoring now um, uh, available and embedded well in some systems. And we want to see that now across the whole, in particular, um, you know, um, clinical care pathways, um, enabling more self-management, enabling better outcomes. Um, but the one thing that we also need to remember in this digital transformation is that we bring people with us um, and that we don't marginalise anyone further. Um, as Kian said, you know, we, we have a spotlight right now on really focusing to reduce the health inequalities gap in this country. And um, if we just roll out digital, we won't bring everyone with us. And there's a lot of um, patient groups that would struggle, people who are homeless, people who have learning disability, uh, people who don't speak English, uh, people who don't have good access to hardware. So yes, absolutely, there's um, uh, a huge aspiration. And of course, at the very sort of um, cutting edge, 
uh, you move into the areas, you know, of of, of AI and um, even further uh, digitization. Um, but I would I would highlight remote monitoring. I think pulse oximetry stands out as um, having been hugely beneficial, very quick and uh, cheap and easy to um, to roll out. Um, and there have been many others besides. It's interesting because uh, my wife is a general practitioner and uh, like all general practitioners, they have embraced the concept of uh, remote consultation. And yet they are very vociferous in the limitations of remote consultation. I was having a discussion with her and she said, look, fundamentally, if you call Mrs. Jones to come and see you, and you walk into the waiting room and you watch Mrs. Jones get out of the chair and walk towards you, you learn a lot that you cannot see from Mrs. Jones appearing as a disembodied face in front of you on a video camera. How do we determine which of these innovations are going to really progress, facilitate and e equalise healthcare, and which ones actually know we want to draw back from that and go back to face to face? How do we do this? Is, 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 is one of your roles identifying the good, the bad and the not so <laughs> and the ugly, as it were, between these innovations? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's doing it in collaboration with all the, the different aspects that make up that um, personalised care. I think that's the phrase is bringing personalised care right into the centre. That, of course, this isn't right for everybody and it isn't right for all conditions. So there's something about condition specific. There's something about individual um, personalised understanding and also patient choice. All of those things in the round. Um, so that we have made those dis decisions carefully by asking the right questions in terms of how people want to be communicated with, but also in understanding the issues in hand. And is this the right intervention for this type of condition? And that's all the learning that's happening right now is, OK, yes, there was a big rollout of digital. And now let's reflect and learn and make sure that it's the right thing for the right person at the right time. Dawn, that's really reassuring. Now, you, you've both mentioned health inequality, and Kieran, and I'm going to come to you now to talk about health inequality. We know that the coronavirus seems to pick on some ethnic groups more than others. Uh, and do we currently know whether this is because of ethnicity or because of socioeconomic factors associated with ethnicity? And how do we dissect out these issues related to health inequality in the COVID pandemic? Well, I think, you know, one of the silver linings, if you like, is is exactly that light that's been shone on these issues and the real impetus that we see across the system now for people being determined to try and um, finally make some progress in this area. In terms of the exact underpinnings of why we see such different outcomes in COVID, you know, I know there's, there's still ongoing work unpicking the extent to which it's um, related to socioeconomic deprivation um, versus, versus other factors. I think from from a healthcare systems perspective, what this has really done is has made us ask the question, what can we be doing? There's clearly social determinants are an enormous issue here, and that is the you know partly responsibility of cross-government work to unpick those really complex issues. But I think we need to also think about what we can be doing. The long-term plan started that movement towards um, identifying what 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 NHS organisations and so on can do. Um, and, and my particular interest here is actually thinking about what individual healthcare professionals can do. So, for example, I know one of the, the lessons highlighted um, in the report was, was how do we optimise patients perioperatively? 
Well, we know from, from recent work that actually um, patients in the most deprived socioeconomic quintile um, have, perhaps unsurprisingly, but have um, worse outcomes from surgery, more post-operative complications and so on. And so what we can do is use that data, if you like, to really empower anaesthetists and surgeons and so on to think, right, how do I optimize my patient from, for example, a deprived socioeconomic background to reduce this uh, differential outcome in, in post-operative complications? And it might be a really simple solution, such as let's use a, a shared decision-making tool that has you know, a, a particularly appropriate slant on health literacy. Um, and suddenly you are able to activate your patient, empower your patient with um, the right tools to understand the ways in which they can reduce their risk, um, be that losing weight ahead of the operation or so on. And then you will hopefully see a tangible improvement in the outcomes for these, for these patients. So that's sort of mapping out that process of, of studying the problem, um, understanding a, a fairly simple tool that you could put through, you know, quality improvement process uh, to try and em empirically analyze it, um, and then, you know, hopefully seeing improvements in outcomes. And I think that's the sort of process that I'm hoping um, will, will be kicked off across the system with uh, individual professionals, organizations, and systems understanding that there is a, a, a bigger role that the NHS can play um, in the health inequalities field. Yeah, I suppose it all starts with an under, with a recognition that there is health inequality and an understanding of the origin of health inequality. Ken, I'm going to use you while you're here because you're a trainee and reflect a little bit on the experience of trainees during the COVID pandemic. Uh, I think overall it has not been a good one in educational ways. It has been a fantastic one in observing the way that trainees have come together to support the NHS and have been really a hugely important part of the NHS's responses to the COVID pandemic. Uh, but you have received your learning online much more. You have received your examinations online much more. Are those changes good? Are they bad? Are they, as Dawn has applied, a mixture of the good and bad? And we need to dissect which is the good and bad. How, what has your experience been these last 18 months as a trainee? Um, as you say, there, there have been good and bad experiences. Uh, I think obviously the negatives, especially for, for trainees and craft specialties, um, but, but beyond as well, there has been a, a far more limited scope of training opportunities. Um, and I know that there is a big focus from, from, from the ALBs and so on, on how do we catch up the trainees. Um, I think that it's clearly been, as for all uh, doctors and, and healthcare professionals of all grades, it's been extremely um, strenuous time and stressful. Um, and you know, I'm pleased to see again that there is a significant focus um, from the system on on how do we how do we look after the psychological well-being of our workforce. I think that's you know been an enormous theme that's come through. Um, and you know, an appreciation that we need our workforce to be, uh, you know, in a, in a state of mind to be able to deliver their best as a starting point for, for good quality of care, um, and that applies to trainees as well. I think there have been some positives. Uh, you know, there, there's potentially, um, you know, certainly I've seen far greater engagement in wider, uh, wider elements of public health, if you like. Suddenly, um, what were previously um, relatively uh, underattended, I'd say, sort of journal meetings um, uh, and, and department seminars were suddenly awash with trainees who were really interested in keeping up with the latest developments of um, COVID treatments um, and so on. And, and there was a far more sort of discussion around you know, early research, 
um, and and actually what what are what are our responsibilities in public health, even if we're an anaesthetics and an ITU trainee. So I think I think that was um, positive. And I think another positive thing probably is, especially with the redeployment, um, as disruptive as that was um, and remains for for a number of our trainees. I think it has engendered an appreciation of the, the importance of generalist medical skills amongst our, our training doctors. Um, and I think as we move forward into you know, a, a healthcare landscape, which is increasingly dominated by, by the older and multi-morbid patient, I think having a, train, a trainee workforce, a very literate with the importance of generalist skills uh, and cross-skilling, um, you know, I think I think that's an important legacy that has been left in our training workforce, and hopefully will bear fruit, you know, in in a, in a few years' time. Now, Kim, you've raised a really important issue, and in fact, the the first of the ten lessons learnt in the college document, which is the well-being of NH staff, is paramount. Dawn, I'm going to come to you next and say, I, I think we can, we kind of knew that, and I think that everybody has accepted that the pandemic placed a lot of pressure on NHS staff across the board, but there's a difference between a recognition of the importance and positive action to support the well-being. Has part of your role involved looking towards what we can do to support and improve the well-being of, of NHS workers, and what can we do? So um, it's been great to see people actually just as importantly talked about as activity and money. And I think that's really the principle here is that, you know, people are at the heart of the NHS. We are here to to serve people, to treat people. And it's through our staff, our people that that happens. And in fact, most of the interventions are absolutely reliant on the well-being of our staff. And I think that's really come to the fore through the pandemic and um, uh, giving the NHS a real kind of platform um, to to be grateful for all of our staff, to praise our staff, um, but now to do the right thing by our staff in making sure that we don't find they're burning out. Um, we do know, um, you know, I've worked in the NHS for 32 years and uh, it relies so much on staff goodwill in so many uh, capacities and actually that's not fair it ought to really look after its people reward them and I think there are really tangible changes happening both at the front line and also nationally in that space so we saw the people plan uh, published we've seen seen huge commitments to resourcing proper well-being support and we're not just talking about recognizing that you know staff need to take the right amount of time off for their leave which is pretty difficult to do when you're in a kind of crisis um, pandemic uh, phase. But it's also recognising that some staff have actually been traumatised by what has been a very challenging and um, tiring uh, and um, really difficult experience and that they need mental health support in some cases. So really focusing on bringing that full range of well-being support and of course recognizing that ultimately if we look after our staff well-being in a real way we will have a more motivated workforce we will have higher staff morale which leads to better patient outcome and greater productivity and so it's the right thing to do whichever lens you look at it through um, and yes definitely there's been a real culture shift 
here in NHS England an improvement in talking about our staff um, as well as uh, the other things we have to look at in terms of activity and, and uh, resourcing and money. Well, you mentioned the, the, the A word there, activity, and this really brings me, I'll come to you first, Keir, and then Dawn, uh, to talk about the difficult balance between uh, focusing on the well-being and health of the NHS staff at the same time as we have now uh, waiting lists in NHS England and in the other devolved NHSs bigger than ever before. I think it's currently running at about 5.3 million. So on one hand, there are people in including NHS staff and patients and politicians saying, we have to work through that backlog, we must up activity, at the same time as saying, but we acknowledge that working our, <laughs> pushing our workforce too hard is not the right thing to do. Kin, is there any solution to that? You know, what is the greater priority, staff well-being or getting the waiting list done, and how do we balance those two potentially imbalanceable issues? Well, as Dawn said, uh, you cannot have one without the other, and we need to have, um, you know, a happy uh, and, and um, motivated workforce in order to work through the backlog of cases. For me, I think this comes down to uh, empowering local systems to work out flexible ways of, of delivering on this backlog. Um, they will understand their staff, and they will understand the the, the local system within which they work, um, and. I think a sort of command and control structure, um, though you know very beneficial in lots of uh, instances during the course of the pandemic. I think in terms of of working through the recovery period, perhaps what we need to do as a, as a sort of centre, if you like, is to provide local systems with the resources um, and you know permission to an extent to work out their their own solutions um, to how best to do this. Um, for their particular patient group. And, and, you know, we've spoken about health inequalities a lot, but there is a particular concern that those patients who will um, uh, you know, suffer the most on the waiting list, if you like, um, are those who typically suffer health inequalities. And local systems understand their patients, understand their patient demographics, and far better than, than us in the sense will know how to make sure we work through those lists in an equitable way, whilst balancing that with the particular um, requirements and demands of their, their local workforce as well. Kian, that, that's brilliant, not just because it's a great answer, but also because you've highlighted one of the other 10 lessons learned from the college document published in June, which is local decision making works, which I'll come to you with, Dawn, with a, a slightly naughty question is, does that mean that leaving people alone and not trying to control too much from the centre and not having the CQC and NHSEI on your case the whole time is a good thing? You don't have to answer that. But is this a balance between letting organisations and trusts make their own decisions and having some sort of central control over the amount of work being done and the direction of that work? Again, is there a balance to be found there? There absolutely is a balance to be found. And, and I think we can all recognise that, uh, that, that there's been um, historically too much reporting for reporting's sake. Um, and there's um, a huge amount of work going on at the moment to really help support the emerging systems with um, population health based data, with um, uh, the uh, new uh, piece of work around um, the health inequalities improvement dashboard. Um, but this is these are tools to support systems to, as Kian said, make the right decisions for their local populations. And I think there is um, uh, growing uh, voice to say, um, let's please, you know, take our foot off the pedal of 
um, you know, too much bureaucracy coming back in and that we need to understand that those things that, that are being uh, shared and um, reported are to the benefit of the development of health and care nationally. Um, and that perhaps, you know, we've asked for far too many uh, measurables, targets, um, KPIs, uh, without really thinking about that carefully enough. And there is work going on to, to make sure that that improves. Uh, there's been a lot of reporting around bureaucracy busting. And I think, um, you know, there is conversation happening right now uh, about what bureaucracy we can we can lessen. Um, I think there's something about tipping the triangle on its head and recognising that actually, you know, NHS England is here to help facilitate, here to help share some of the learning, um, here to um, provide some, uh, you know, socialisation scale and spread. Um, but actually, as we see the ICSs become statutory, hopefully, uh, then, you know, recognising their leadership at local level. Um, so, yes, I think uh, definitely uh, there is a shift required and is starting starting to happen. Dawn, you've made me a very happy person indeed to hear a senior leader of the NHS support bureaucracy busting is just fantastic. Now, um, lots of organisations like the Royal College of Anesthetists are coming out with recommendations. And because I'm an immense cynic, I try and divide things between hobby horses that they were on before they're using the opportunity to exert greater leverage and things that actually will help us to use the Prime Minister's phrase, build back better, uh, be better placed in the future for managing a pandemic. And if you look at number two in the list of our 10 lessons learned, it's about workforce. Now, the COVID pandemic, I hope you would both agree, has exposed workforce deficiencies, not just in anaesthetists and intensivists, but across the whole NHS. Keen, I'm going to come to you first. If, do we just try and catch up a bit to where we should have been, or is this an opportunity to say workforce is our most important element of the provision of NHS care? We need substantial extra investment. Do we increase a little bit? Do we increase a lot? How do we go about deciding where we can actually invest in workforce and what sort of workforce we need? Do we need more tertiary care consultants and anaesthetists in ivory towers? Do we need more people providing basic care and primary care? How, we how do we decide how many? How do we decide where to place this additional workforce? Yes, well, that's a, an extremely topical area at the moment. I know that the Health and Social Care Select Committee uh, recently um, published their report um, emphasising the need for significant investment in the future workforce. I know that the Royal College of Physicians uh, and many other colleges are uh, um, making it a priority of theirs. Um, and so, you know, I think the simple answer would be, yes, we need more. Um, I think, you know, the reality is there's more nuance there, isn't there? And uh, as the pandemic has revealed, there are certain... Um, skill sets um, and elements to our workforce that we need to particularly work upon. So, for example, uh, ensuring that we have a greater generalist skill set um, will enable us to contend with the changing trajectory, if you like, of our patient um, population uh, in terms of them being generally older and with, with um, more um, multi-morbidity. Um, we also need a more flexible workforce that can be deployed across um, care settings, um, be that through um, providing regular exposure to different care settings, um, 
Bunjabur across skilling, um, and be that working with, you know, as simple as working with rotor coordinators and so on to ensure that that, that is actually worked in somebody's job plan. Um, and I think, you know, that's an important point, not only for acute surges in healthcare demand, such as a pandemic, but also under normal circumstances. You will increase efficiency of care if you have a workforce who are more confident in not needing to necessarily refer on for, for other you know, more general issues that they might otherwise be able to manage. Um, we also know that um, you know, reducing the number of transitions of care uh, can, can also be uh, you know, a good thing from a patient safety perspective. Um, I also think it, it speaks to uh, improving, uh, you know, the morale and, and professional satisfaction that our workforce can also have if they feel like they are working to the top of their license um, and that there is a variability to what they're doing on a day to day basis. So I suppose, you know, yes, we need more workforce at all, but I think we can think about creative ways to um, get more out of um, what we can provide to our workforce that, that we already have as well. So Dawn, I wonder if I can uh, reflect this question onto you. So Kian has made a tremendous case there for more people and more flexible people and systems and processes that use people more effectively. Would that be very much the message that you would give as well? I think, first of all, we need to understand uh, the models of care that are the right sustainable models of care for the future and um, build the workforce capacity that we require around that. And I don't think that we've got that right yet at all. Um, and we are seeing huge amount of learning in that space in response to the pandemic around integrated models of care, which does reflect some of what Kian said, but really specifically integrating secondary, primary community and even social care around particular cohorts of patients. If you take frailty as one area in particular, we've got some fantastic examples of people coming together, integrated single points of access, integrated frailty teams, coming together virtually and making decisions that are quicker and that are avoiding that bouncing around between primary, secondary, ambulance, trust, hospital and back home. Um, it's those sorts of models of care that we need to understand. We need to understand how we should embed them, the digital interoperability required to sustain them, and then build with HEE, the workforce of the future, to, to run them. And in the same way, in primary care, absolutely, there's work going on to look at really transformative primary care models that perhaps the vast majority of people accessing primary care don't need to see a doctor. Um, and there's plenty of evidence to suggest that they don't. They need to see all sorts of people, pharmacy, nursing, social skill support, life support in terms of, you know, life skills. There's a huge uh, kind of um, misalignment in terms of the footfall and the response. So really, really exciting to see some pilots that are looking at really transformative workforce. Um, fewer GPs, more um, uh, uh, well-being link workers is one name for them. And it's really impressive to see the results of that sort of um, change in workforce skill set. Um, so recognising when we need to have that specialist um, available and why, but making sure that only the right people get to that point and everyone else is seen, you know, by, let's face it, um, a less um highly qualified workforce that's easier for us to recruit um, and we start to have a sustainable model of workforce delivering a sustainable model of care
Dawn, that's brilliant. Transformation of care, not just numbers, not just bums on seats. So we're coming towards the end of the time that we've got. And I'm going to one of the lessons learned that we put forward as a college is that the healthcare system must be better prepared for future pandemics. And I think that's been a watchword of the entire pandemic is that this is not the last time that this is going to happen. Um, Kian, does that mean that we should have lots more intensive care beds, lots more ventilators, lots more anaesthetists and lots more critical care doctors? Is it as simple as that? Or do you think there are other things that we should think about in preparing for future crises similar to this? Well, building redundancy into the system, I think, is, is definitely important, as been, has been revealed by the COVID pandemic. Um, but as you say, there are other things we, we should be thinking about. Um, Dawn just touched upon the need for you know, a truly integrated approach to uh, you know, the care that our workforce can deliver. And I think the pandemic sadly revealed the um, gaps, really, between health and social care and how lots of patients fell through those during the pandemic. And so a far more sort of holistic and integrated approach um, will protect some of our most vulnerable patients um, you know, in any future uh, pandemic. Um, I think it's easy for us to look you know, at what we can do as, as a health system within the UK. I think you know, a pandemic is by definition a global um, a phenomenon. And uh, you know, I think in the future we should be focusing far more upon international health networks to facilitate earlier detection um, better information sharing um, and kind of cross-border collaboration, um, and very importantly, resource sharing as well. Um, so I think I think you know not only do we need to think about what we internally should be doing, but also actually um, what are the implications for our relationships with other other health systems. Yes, certainly. The when you said building in redundancy, that's an expensive thing to do. Building in redundancy, but I I take your point is that certainly our critical care colleagues say that we have fewer critical care beds per head of population in this country. Uh, and that's something we should start to think about addressing. But others people will say that it's not just about critical care beds. It's about the way you look after patients and building up the concept of enhanced care so that you don't need as many critical care beds. Dawn, do you have any comments on that about how we could pre better prepare for future crises like this? Absolutely. So, you know, we have to get better at our demand and capacity modelling. So how do we model what we need at system level to respond to the population health needs? Um, Recognising that we could do more to keep some of the flow away from the acute hospital door and that some of those initiatives are now really um, making a difference. But we also need to understand that, you know, when we look at population health based data, it's different depending on so many factors, geography, demography um, and and various other um, factors that we need to understand in terms of the health inequalities gap. So what works in one local system isn't necessarily going to work in another local system in terms of the number of beds, the number of different types of services. And we need to get better at that. We need to get better at, you know, really. Uh, looking at that data from a bottom-up perspective. But I do think we have to acknowledge that there is um, uh, learning here in terms of getting the resource into the right places. How do we manage good surge capacity? How do we um, have good response uh, where we know the right services that can be stepped down quickly into the community uh, in a safe way uh, when we need to have surge capacity on beds? Um, so, yes, lots of learning still still to do. Um, the question around um, the actual number of beds, 
um, I think is a good one because I don't think we've ever nationally done a piece of work to understand what we need. Um, and I think I think that is something that is starting to be progressed. So time draws on and I'm going to ask you each the same question, one short question at the end. I'm going to give you each a magic wand. The magic wand is made out of the wood from the magic money tree. This is I'm going to ask you to choose your one at most two things that you would most like to do right now to the NHS to set us off in the direction that you think the NHS should go in the next months and in the next years. I can see, oh, who shall I pick first? I'm going to pick Dawn first. What, 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 if, you, if, I, if you had that magic wand in your hand, what would you do with it? Okay, so the first thing I would do is I would review the health and social care spend in totality. So we have a huge number of arm's length bodies in this country and, um, and many of them are doing some great stuff. But actually, in terms of the value adds when resource is so tight, I think there's something to be done in reviewing the amount of spend that actually reaches patient intervention level. Um, so I would start there um, and simplify our unnavigable system. And I would absolutely completely integrate health and social care into one single system. Those are my two things. Oh, that's absolutely brilliant. Thank you. Kian, you've got the magic wand in your hand. How are you going to use it? Well, I'm uh, you know, an enormous fan of doing everything we can to empower patients who uh, really take control of their healthcare narrative. Um, so not only to kind of promote primary prevention, but also uh, secondary prevention uh, and optimization once, once pathology is onset. Um, so I think that would require um, a fairly substantial rethink of the way in which you know, all doctors nurses, health professionals interact with patients that would be um, providing them with uh, you know, far more resources which are appropriate to the given patient that you're seeing in a very personalised um, care model sort of way um, in order to provide them with the right information, the right navigation through the healthcare system um, and um, access to, to, to all of these resources which, which um, could uh, optimise their, their health before we ever need to uh, treat them or, or do anything particular to them within within the NHS. Um, and I think that would herald the sort of paradigm shift that I think we've all been circling around for a little while of, of how do we actually improve the health of the nation before um, before disease onset necessarily occurs. Guys, those are fantastic questions. And that really, to me, is the theme of this discussion. Although I was kind of coming out saying, give we an Eastist intense, but it's more stuff, more money, more staff, that actually this goes so much farther in towards transforming the very nature of healthcare, the health of the population being the most important thing, preventing, preventing disease rather than just curing disease and individualizing that care and looking at health, health inequality. And it's been absolutely fascinating. I would like to thank you both. You have been absolutely brilliant. You have given fantastic answers, very clear answers, and the answers that we were looking for, which is really, really exciting. I'm so grateful to you for the time that you've given us. I know you are busy. Get out there and carry on tra transforming the care of people in the NHS. Dawn Chamberlain, Kian Wade, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Royal College of Anaesthetists podcast. 
Make sure you don't miss out on the latest episodes by clicking subscribe on your favourite podcatcher. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, please make sure you give us a review. It helps others find our podcast. And finally, if you would like to access more podcasts, as well as videos, e-learning, webinars, and our programme of events and courses, you can find them all online at rcoa.ac.uk forward slash education. We hope to see you again soon. Please note, all views expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals and not those of the Royal College of Anaesthetists.